Our first reading comes from Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. This can be found on page 610 of the Church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the, people, the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. And our final reading in this series from Galatians is Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. This can be found on page 946 of the Church Bibles. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And so end Galatians. Let me pray. Father, give, give to us a sharp focus on what matters 
uh, give us clarity on what doesn't and wisdom to discern, but most of all, give us a defining, a defining faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our text today begins with the Apostle Paul wrestling a pen from his scribe. Chapter 6, verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. And so we come to the final words of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's been a journey. These final words, like the whole of Galatians, are short, punchy, dense, and weighty. Bishop Tom Wright points out that they show that Paul is in control of his thought processes despite being passionate, and frustrated. They sum up the book and bring the main point home. In his, in his final verses, he slays his opponents, if I can use the parlance of our times, taking apart their motives in verses 12 and 13. Then he models, models a better way in verses 14 to 16, and then some final words in 17 and 18. And what stands at the centre of both these passages is your posture towards the cross of Jesus Christ. Boasting, boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now next week I just want to free myself of a single text and draw out some practical implications of the epistle for life in this complex 21st century and we'll have some time for questions as well next week. But today, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. I like to imagine the Apostle Paul pacing a room as he spoke Galatians into being. No, he didn't have a blue t-shirt or a computer. It's the year 50 AD and Paul knows that the issue looks small but is very real, like really small. Circumcision for new male non-Jewish believers because the Torah says so, because the Bible says so. But for Paul to do this is a matter of life and death I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all, chapter 5, verse 2. And so everything hangs in the balance there in South Galatia, modern Turkey. Redemption hangs in the balance. Salvation hangs in the balance. And you can see how others are saying, look, don't worry about it. It's not an important issue. It shouldn't bother you. It's just a small procedure. But I believe that Paul, when he's pacing that room, I believe he had you in mind. I believe he had you in mind in Australia. Not that he knew you, nor knew Australia. But I believe he had you in mind. That is, a Gentile believer who has found salvation, has found God, by faith in Jesus Christ and not by Torah. He had you in mind. And so he paces the room, frustrated that these people are tempted by a slavery, amazed that they could go back to Torah, to law, and gobsmacked that they can't see the completeness of Christ's revolution. And so here he is, carefully but passionately, dictating a letter until the very end when he grabs the pen. So dramatic. He grabs the pen. And the writing changes. 
from small and professional to rough and ready. We don't have the manuscript, but perhaps it looks something like this. It's not unusual for letters in antiquity to be dictated because they were written by a professional, say on the left-hand side there. In our modern times, we might think of architectural drawings in the same way. Not everyone can do it, even if all of us can understand space, you know, can imagine how we might use it, but you know, you're not, you can't do the drawings. In Paul's letter to the Romans, there's a scribe who names himself. He chimes in at the end. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. That's nice, isn't it? So who wrote Romans? The answer is Tertius. Well, no, Paul did. Tertius was the scribe. And in the same way, Galatians was dictated by Paul, pacing the room maybe, but a scribe wrote the note. That is until the end of the book. See with what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. It's also not unusual for these letters to be signed at the end, called a subscription or a signature, but I'm told that Paul's ending in Galatians is unique in antiquity. No one else... I mean, it's not just a signature, it is um, a set of words, maybe 11 to the end of the chapter. I read a little essay on this this week, and the essayist, a professor in classical languages, asks the following four questions. Note my emphasis on the screen. First question, why did Paul write this? Why did he add this subscription to the letter? Why did he, secondly, why did Paul mention explicitly that he was writing with his own hand? Thirdly, why did he use large letters? And fourthly, why did he feel the need to point out that he was using large letters? The academic wrote, I don't take legible handwriting for granted today, even among the highly educated college students, or perhaps I should stay, say, especially among highly educated college students. For with the advent of the typographic culture, there now seems to be an inverse relationship between level of education and good handwriting. You know, we, we make, you know, we mock doctors, doctors' writings for a reason. Uh, ironically, he writes, this seems to be, have been the case in antiquity too. Paul is a thinker, but he's not a scribe. Now, there are a plethora of reasons given for Paul's unusual subscription. Did he have an eye problem? Is that why he's writing large? Was he uneducated? Not likely. Or was he trying to expose the showiness of the opponents by being showy himself. I think Occam's razor should be applied here, which is the simplest explanation is probably the right one. The large writing is probably, mere, probably emphasis. Let me stress this. With large letters, he's passionate about you hearing the next thing that's about to be said. He's passionate about it, about you getting it. It's like, of all things, large, large writing, of all, of all things, get this. And what are you to get? 
two things. One, no more flesh boasting and loads more cross boasting. And I believe the latter, of course, is an ironic use of the former being used as a, as a, uh, a mode of being, a little bit like your boss, Bronwyn. And he's going to mock that and be ironic about it by saying, if you want to boast, why don't we boast about something weak? We'll come to that. Firstly, no more flesh boasting. What do I mean? Now, this is a summary of what you've been hearing, but let me read it and explain it. Verse 12, get this, large handwriting, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. There's a motive right there. I think there's a second motive at the very end of this section, which is interesting. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, so there's an integrity question, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. So you see the word flesh mentioned there a few times. A couple of things. First, Paul does not name his troublemakers. Here they are, those who want to impress people. That's important. Paul plays the ball, not the man. He's interested in the issues, not uh, slagging individuals. In any case, they are about impressing others. Despite the accusation that Paul is the one who's the people pleaser, making things easier. After all, he's saying you can have God without all the, you know, the heavy Old Testament laws. He's saying, actually, we're not the ones trying to impress people. We're, just, we're on track with what Jesus always wanted. They are the people pleasers, and he's going to prove it to you. They want to impress people by means of the flesh. There's a double meaning there. But in the context, the flesh means that this is a very human activity. It's not about God or what God wants. It's grubby and it's human. It's boasting. It's about relying on Egypt, mere horses, flesh. It's about getting in front of the politics of head office. It's about wearing the right badge so that people can say, he's kosher, she's kosher which is both actual and metaphorical. What is the badge? Well, you've been here, many of you have been for the series. You know the answer. They're trying to compel you to be circumcised. There's the badge. Now, I will in no way be upset at the conclusion of this series to not use that word ever again. But it's important because it's culturally important and historically for a Christian because circumcision, as most of you know, is a Jewish identity marker dating to Abraham, and it marked you as a, mem as a part of his family, a part of God's promise. But as you know also, the people becoming Christians aren't Jewish. They're not looking Jewish. They're not observing Torah, but they've come to know God by faith. The pressure to Judaize was strong. Snip, snip, and you're all part of the family. Won't take long. Paul says it's all show. It's all about impressing people. They just want to brag or boast about it in the flesh or in your flesh. Now, as we've been saying, most likely there was Roman pressure being brought to bear, the Romans requiring all people to take part in emperor worship for the sake of the empire. 
to say that Caesar is Lord and to turn up to the temple to do so. But Jews wouldn't do it. It was their first commandment. The Romans were pragmatists. They knew that Jewish people were stubborn. So for the sake of keeping the peace in everywhere, they just gave Jewish people the exemption, you know, so that they weren't the door to everybody else disrespecting the emperor. But there in South Galatia, non-Jews were becoming Christians but not taking on Torah, not looking Jewish and not turning up to the temple. After all, they were repenting of idols and they now believe that Jesus was Lord and perhaps they were claiming the exemption. You can see the problem, by the way. This is at the Wailing Wall. I found this photo on Google, but no doubt both these, probably both these men are Jewish. But, you know, granted the sort of 17th or 18th century form of Judaism on the left there, one of these men looks Jewish and the other doesn't. And, um, you know, if you're Rome, you say, well, the guy on the left can have his exemption, but the guy on the right can't. And more and more of the people on the right were claimed, like you look, were claiming to trust Jesus as Messiah. And you could see head office saying, you know what, just get them to look Jewish and the Roman heaviness will disappear. Same conversations led to the cross of Christ. Now with that in mind, maybe these verses will make more sense. They want to impress people, head office, men from James, from Jerusalem. Look, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're, we're getting them to be Jewish. But maybe also verse 12 makes sense. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's an easier path. It's the peaceful path. You get Rome saying, okay, you're the regular Jewish folk, not the cross of Jesus, nuts, idiots. But Paul says, no, nah, it's not the gospel, it's slavery. You're better off being a cross of Jesus, nut, like being boasting on the cross of Christ and willing to risk uh, persecution, both from the Romans and maybe from the Jewish heavyweights in the town. In verse 13, he summarizes a point he made back in chapter 5. Not even those who were circumcised keep the law yet they want you to be circumcised. There's an integrity issue here. It's inconsistent in many ways. They're picking and choosing bits of Torah and ignoring the rest, but you can't do it. If you're going to be Jewish, you've got to take all of the law and the prophets and take them all seriously. And if you're going to be Christian, by the way, you've got to take all of the Old Testament and, 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 and believe it. It's the story of God but you've got to take all of the Old Testament, all of it. I believe even the Ten Commandments, actually. You've got to take all of the Old Testament and take it all to the cross of Jesus Christ, not bits of it. Because there in Christ, the Torah is fulfilled, the Torah being the story of God, all of it. The Genesis, the commands, the stiff-necked people, the forgiveness, the new heart and the new spirit promised in exile. In other words, the, old, the whole Old Testament is fulfilled by the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus is a revolution that changes everything. They're cherry-picking. These are the bits that counts. Circumcision, probably Sabbath-keeping, that's a Saturday, and some food laws. Have you ever been to Brooklyn? I used to live 
just across the East River. And, you know, the pressure to look Jewish, if you are Jewish, in Brooklyn would be amazing, granted the, the um, 18th century European expression of it. And if you've seen the Netflix uh, series Unorthodox, you have a sense of the pressure that it must have felt like to, to be Jewish, and Christianity is, after all, a Jewish uh, religion, uh, at least initially. This whole book is about the liberation of, 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 uh, of faith from, 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 from Jewish Torah, from being Jewish. But Paul says they're doing all of it to control you, to get you to be zealous for them, 4 verse 17. It's code for part of my tribe, and that's borne out in the inconsistency. Paul says they don't really keep the law, they cherry pick. Now, Christians can cherry pick too. Now, I don't want to say that we're doing the same thing as them. Maybe we are, maybe we're not. That's up for us. We could talk about that perhaps next week. But conservatives can do it. Conservative readers of the Bible, people who like the Bible and uphold the Bible, can do cherry picking with the Old Testament. That can happen. I'll give you an example. One way is that you can take bits of the Old Testament that you love, some Psalms, some of the promises to Israel, Here's a classic one, 1 Chronicles 4, verse 10. God, expand my territory. It's given to a man named Jabez. You know, you take that one verse, you pluck it out of context, both its original context, it was a prayer for one person in a context, but also the context of the Torah and the whole of the New Testament, plucked out of context, I guess because you like it, you call it valid without... With ignoring, while ignoring the context, often, by the way, the damnation, the exile, the judgment, and then the promise of salvation and, and redemption. And instead of taking the whole Old Testament and taking all of it to the cross of Christ and then reading the Bible in light of the coming of Jesus, you hope to get away with cherry-picking. And by the way, I think it's true even of the Psalms. One of the things I loved about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life together is he writes in it that the Psalms are first the Psalter of Jesus, the songbook of Jesus. So if you read a psalm, my recommendation is read it twice, every time. And first one, close your eyes and read it through the lens of Jesus. Say to yourself, it's risky, but you know, say to yourself, I'm going to read this as though I'm Jesus. And by the way, the psalms will suddenly make enormous sense to you. But don't forget to read it a second time through Jesus Christ to claim the promises and the emotions and the assertions and the doubts for yourself. This is why, as I pointed out last week, we need to invest in teachers who get it. Conservatives can do it, but if I can put it this way, liberal Christians can do it too. People who are more likely to be soft on the Bible. I saw this meme on January one this year, look at that list. This year, I want to be more like Jesus. And I look down that list, and I'm like, that's a great list. You know, I want to be more like Jesus, hang out with sinners, upset religious people, tell stories that make people think, choose unpopular friends, be kind, loving, and merciful, and take naps in, on boats or in the middle of the day. 
Now, I love that list, and I get it, by the way, and it's all true about Jesus. All of that is true about Jesus, all of it. You know, I look at that and think, I want to retweet that one. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't it cherry-picking, even the life of Jesus? How about, you know, Jesus chose to live a life of celibacy. No one ever puts that one up on a meme. Or challenging sinners to repent, like Jesus. Or urging people to avoid hell, like Jesus. I mean, that's more, Jesus more than anybody. Or tell good people that they are evil. Jesus did that. Tell theologians that they need to be born again. Jesus did that. Tell people that they are committing adultery just by looking. That's Jesus. Or die a horrible death to take on the sins of the world. I can't do that. I think I like this meme. I really do. But the problem with it is, is it assumes that I'm Jesus. And that's often the way of a more liberal reading of the New Testament. Namely that Jesus is this model of, just, of pursuit of justice that I'm to follow. But I'm like, wait a minute. I'm also the sinner needing his grace. They cherry-pick then, and while I'm not saying that our cherry-picking is the same, we must not cherry-pick. Take all the Torah, all the prophets, take it all to the cross of Christ, read the Old Testament in light of the whole apostolic message. And so he says, no more boasting in the flesh, no more bragging. They want to get you circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. They want to say, how many are now Jewish? To be frank, they want to brag about how many foreskins. A joke Paul makes, I think, in Philippians. But it's all below thinking, not from above, not from God, all designed to please head office, to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. And for Paul, it's all going back to Egypt, back to safety, back to slavery, back to exile, back to the elemental forces, gods and wooden stone. It is anathema. No more flesh boasting. But in contrast, if you want to brag, brag about the cross of Jesus Christ. See, well, how does it go? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown. Amen. Paul writes, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not boasting in law, I'm not boasting in status, not in achievements. Not in the flesh, of course, in that culture, and perhaps in our own culture. Maybe Brahman's raised that with us about her, her boss. Maybe the whole idea of elevating a thing that gives your life significance and saying to everyone, look at this. Maybe, well, that was certainly a thing back then, and maybe it is a thing now. And Paul says, may that never happen except that I elevate one thing and say, look at this. The cross of Jesus Christ. Paul is inviting us to survey 
the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, and to stop elevating other things as defining. Because that's why you boast, right? You say, look what I did. Oh, aren't you amazing? And Paul says, I think ironically, look at a man bloodied and dying on a cross. This, of course, is a regular feature in Paul's writing that a crucifixion is at the heart of Paul's brag, his boast. If he's going to brag at all, it's going to be in the weakness of God and in my weakness. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is my glory. Why? Because through the cross, in the cross, everything for me has changed. May I never boast in the cross, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me. I look at the world and I see it on a cross. And I, to the world, when the world looks at me, they see me on a cross. I look at the world, I see it on a cross. The world looks at me and they see me on a cross. Now that is astounding. (laughs) No more talk about Christianity being about values, mere values. Now, this can't mean that Paul has no interest in the things of the world. He's a Jew who believes in Genesis, that the world is good. And we know he did care about the world. He had a job. He needed an income. He cared about people. But I think what he's saying here is, to me, the whole world has been strung up on a cross, crucified. In other words, I'm no longer interested in pleasing the world. The world is not or no longer that which defines me. It is dead to me. In other words, everything has changed through the cross of Jesus Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I could have it all, but I count it in the lost column and I pour contempt on all my pride. This is an antidote to pride. But if it's true that the world is dead to me, then the reverse is also true. I have been strung up on a cross according to the world. They care not for me, my faith, my God. They, my, the world is dead to me. I am dead to the world. In a moment, we're going to sing Isaac Watts's glorious hymn, but we're going to include the lesser-known verse 4. And it's lesser-known because I don't think people understand those first two lines I think it's slightly different the way we're singing it, but um, pretty similar. His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads over his body on the tree. This is the blood falling over Christ in his death. And in his death, because of the cross of Christ, then am I dead to all the world, and all the world is dead to me. Why? Because you've worked out what matters. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation promised in Isaiah 65, read to us a moment ago. But I believe that verse there sums up Galatians. What counts is the new thing that God has done 
and is doing through Jesus, and it ain't circumcision, because it's not the Torah. Circumcision isn't the issue, was never the issue really, so why make it the issue? The whole world has changed. The promises embedded in the Torah and in the prophets that God would liberate you from sin and give you what the Torah couldn't give you, a new heart, redemption, a new soul. You are a new creation. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and he is preparing for you a new home, a global new creation promised in Isaiah 65, and this hope is alive in you now, even as you wait by the Spirit, Paul will write. The promise in Isaiah 65, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. It is a promise that is for Jerusalem, yes, that will be a delight, but in Isaiah, it encompasses the whole world, not just the people of God, and that is the whole dang point of Galatians. You get God. Here it is. You get God. You get God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You get God even though you're not obeying Torah. And they fought for it, Paul and the like. I asked a World War II buff this week, was there a battle that no one's ever heard of, but if it wasn't fought, you wouldn't be free? I've yet to hear back an answer. If you know one, if you're a history buff, let me know. Paul fought a battle that you might not have heard of unless you were here for the series. But because, it, because of it, you get God and you are free. And this is why it's peace, not to Israel, but to Israel, the true Israel, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God, no matter where you live, Africa, Asia, Australia, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. What next? We'll talk a little bit next week, but... One answer is get on board with grace. Um, don't trouble those who fight for it. Jesus fought for grace, for your redemption. Honour those who join him. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus, wrote Paul as he paced the room. Live as free daughters and sons of God. Allow his grace to work in your inner being. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit Sisters and brothers, amen. And taking the joy and the grace of God into your inner being, allow Jesus to then shape your life by faith as a free daughter of God, as a son and an heir of the kingdom, brought in, therefore a person obedient to the grace of God. The only thing that counts, writes Paul, is faith expressing itself through love. It means we can say, along with Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine, I could be given it all. And if I were given it all, it will be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen, let's pray, let's pray. Father, we do delight in all those things that you give us uh, daily and in our lives. We do thank you for many of us for um, 
safety in this nation of Australia. We thank you for um, the jobs that we might have or the income we might receive or the, uh, the friends that you give us and for the achievements that many of us have, 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 have achieved in our lives. But Father, may we never lift them up, point these things to others and say, this is where our meaning, our identity um, may we never lift these things up and say these things define us. They don't. May we never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by which the world has been cru- I've been crucified of the world and the world to me. May this be everything. Um, and, 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 and the cross of Christ being our redemption, as it is everything, even as things get stripped away from us, as they do from time to time with work or, or, uh, or friends or, 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 uh, or, or as uh, mental health, um, or even in age and, and in suffering as things get taken away from us, may we be, even in our inner beings, be able to say that the one thing that gives my life meaning and identity, that one thing can never be stripped away. Your grace never stripped away. The hope in the resurrection cannot be taken from us. For I am convinced, right, the Apostle Paul, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor powers nor principalities, bad bosses, um, financial uh, uncertainty, uh, mental health, nothing in all creation, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.